Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? J.D. Fuller is an African-American LCSW who has over 25 years of experience as a mental health clinician, educator, writer, and consultant. With a Master of Social Work from Smith College, J.D. has held positions as an adjunct professor, as well as a clinical and area director for outpatient and mental health programs. J.D. is an activist and truth teller. As an advocate for equity and inclusion, she constantly speaks out against inequality. Focusing through a mental health lens, J.D. is a widely sought-after clinician, providing education, training, and consultation on ways to navigate the difficult conversations related to systemic and internalized racism, white privilege, and the tenets of oppression. She is esteemed for her insight, empathy, authenticity, unique perspective, and ability to empower while provide education. J.D. is a firm believer that one's truth lives in the body, and that the lived experience guides the process of how we integrate new information. J.D. continues to speak out wherever she sees social inequity. Welcome, J.D. We want to welcome everybody to Change the Narrative. Things are a little bit different today because the mics have been switched. Uh, I am Kevin Clayton, one of the partners over here at IM Music Group that produces the show for Change the Narrative. We wanted to take this time out to actually have a moment to interview J.D., I've actually known JD for some time, but I've not really taken a moment to get to know her. And we thought as we did that, we could also share her with her audience. So we thought maybe I could start with how I came to know you, JD. I'll just do that as a quick intro. So way back when I, I was looking for work, I was just married to my wife and I needed some sort of job. And she had a friend named Sol Garcia who was doing some work in a mental health area. And I had no clue of what what it was or what it would entail. But I said, you know what, Let, let's, let's try it. And uh, in the process of getting that job, I ended up working under you. You were the supervisor. And right. I was, was blown away with the work that was being done at the time. It was with young kids, boy, it was ages five through five, nine, nine or something. I remember like, yeah. they were experiencing major issues, I guess I'll say. Um, you can correct me if I use the wrong terminology. And yeah. something I was completely unaware of. We were meeting kids that were in elementary school that were exhibiting issues. And I think they all had therapists at the school. And then the therapist would recommend the children to this program. And we were in charge of picking them up from school and then giving them further whatever you guys were doing. I didn't know. I was just driving the bus. Uh, <laughs> not true at all. That is not true. We were a team. And I... Yeah. The thing that that, that I was just blown away by is you were such a mothering person. You were so firm and loving and you encapsulated like all these different pieces that children need. And I saw so much change in so many of these kids because they felt safe, because they felt cared for, because they knew there were boundaries, because they knew all these things. And I thought, wow, this is what love looks like. This lady, this lady is, is, is like bringing it to the table. And, um, you know, I worked there for a short while and our, and our, our paths, you know, took different routes, but 
Uh, we have since with my wife and Erica started a studio and we've been doing getting into podcasting. And the first person that came to mind was you, JD, um, when we started thinking about things that we wanted to put out into the atmosphere that were positive, that were life changing, that were something that people aren't talking about that wasn't necessarily about trying to get numbers, but were things that were really going to change people's lives and make a difference. And that's how this came about with us reaching out to you. And I was so excited you, you were on board. And I'm talking too much. Um, so <laughs> Never. <laughs> that's how we are here. So we've started this show and now we want to, want to interview you and get deeper in because I've never asked you about your, your personal life. And I don't know if we'll get too deep, of course, depending on how far you want to go. We just want to learn more about you, like where you come from, your family life. I know that you're the youngest of nine, but tell us a yeah. little bit about that. First of all, you were much more than a bus driver. You were amazing. You fell right in line. And, you know, you and Soul helped me realize that Black parenting doesn't necessarily work with the Spanish-speaking parents. They needed to understand that I was not reprimanding their children, but I was actually creating behavior strategies. So you were that kind male presence, and Soul was my everlasting bridge for communication to certain parts of the community. And so it was an amazing team. I was sad to see you go. Let me just start off by saying that. I am from Norwalk, Connecticut, born and raised. I mean, the youngest of nine, right? So there's eight other people you're watching go through the maze of large family, trying to figure out what not to do and also how to get over in uh, much different ways uh, based on their failures. And so that was a lot of my, a lot of my growing up was watching and observing. So it's not too surprising I turned that into a career later on. But it, it was pretty smooth transition, actually. Well, that's the thing that was really big for me. I mean, it maybe it seems so natural to you, but for us from the outside, um, I mean, what what point did you realize that this was going to be a road for you in terms of um, yeah. mental health? That that's that's such a great and honest question. So. I was always one of those curious people. First of all, I had a lot of anxiety, lots. I was, I remember being nine years old, standing in front of the TV, worried about the Vietnam War. How's this all going to turn out? What's this going to look like? You would have thought mm-hmm. I had a part in, in, in running the country. So I've always had that, that level of intensity and curiosity. And um, I grew up with anxiety and depression. So I was always overwhelmed by life. And, you know, having had early childhood experiences that sort of set me on that path, along with just personal characteristics, I was an adolescent who, well, actually, I was a child, then adolescent, who never had one teacher who saw me for who I was or saw my potential. And, and I always wanted to be that for kids. And that was my main goal was to be something for children that I didn't have in my life. And adolescence was a period that I struggled very specifically. And so I zeroed in on the adolescent community and had various part-time jobs that kind of led to it. And then um, I started working at what used to be called, God forbid, it's not called anymore, thank goodness, Department of Mental Retardation. After, of course, I was given the opportunity to drop out of college myself or to be kicked out of college. (laughs) Basically, probation only lasts for so long. So after that, I started doing a bunch of odd jobs, and one of them was in mental health, and it just fit like a glove. Hmm. Hmm. That's really deep. And so up until that point then, and I'm I'm, I'm grabbing some of the stuff that I hear you guys say, but Mm -hmm. you were getting the different messages from your family, from school, uh, and from the world, all of these three different places. What and your overall feeling was that no one saw you. Yeah. 
Right. For my family, I think I was, and I won't speak on their behalf, but I can only imagine based on how I w- felt, I, I was always thinking too much, feeling too much, and asking too many questions. And in school, I think that was, it turned into avoidance for me because I didn't feel engaged. I didn't feel seen. And so then it just became acting out behavior, which is why I always say kids act out what they don't have the language for. And I, I was a professional actor outer. And so I really got to understand that from the inside out. And then that's how it just sort of evolved. Once I left college, like, what am I going to do? Then I started working mm-hmm. as a behavior specialist in residential living for those with intellectual disabilities, severe behavior problems. And then I turned that into working with adolescents at risk. And then it evolved from there into like being executive director at a teen center once I went to California and came back. And then I went back to school, finished my undergraduate as an adult, and then began in my uh, graduate program at Smith. And then that's when I, I gained my, my degree and eventually got licensed. Okay. And I, one of the things that came up when we were looking through your, as you were, you know, working to get your degree, your, your graduate uh, piece was the, the, the racial identity development of the yeah. African-American female. What, what brought you around to that title? And then what, was your, what were your findings? So, well, you all dug a little deep now, didn't you? Uh, so, yeah. So, my <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in a family that was very community-based. We had a lot of different uh, people around us, all different races. You know, the project we lived in when I was uh, a child was extremely diverse. And so... When we moved out of the projects and we became the first black family in Colonial Village in Norwalk, one of the things we experienced was letters of, of, from the community not wanting us to be there. I mean, it was really first experience with racism in a way that felt very personal. And I became very observant of what, what that felt like. And so by the time I became an adult, I still did not understand this African-American identity because it seemed very diluted from having such a diverse group of friends and growing up in such a diverse environment that I became obsessed with what it meant to be black. And so I I did a lot of research and learning things that we aren't taught in school. And I got curious, like, what does the African-American adolescent female know about her racial identity development? And through my research, I found out not much at that time. Their identity was very much a part of the community, but in terms of who they were, then developing their own racial identity was challenged. Uh, there's no, there's no framework for it. There's no, no teaching of it. And so, in developing this thesis, I just got really grounded in the anti-racism work and and what it means to be culturally aware in a way that it teaches and invites others in. Mm. And so, what happened during that time? I and mean, that's pretty empowering trajectory. What what did it start to do for you as a person as you started to research this information and find? Yeah. I guess what you would what we call the truth, you know, these truths yeah. about you, about America. What did that do to you? I got angry. I got very angry. Um, I was resentful for not having been taught the truth. I was resentful that I had to, you know, pay and find out for myself all the things that we didn't know. And and one of the things I know in retrospect was I had older parents, older than a lot of my mm-hmm. friends. People thought they were my grandparents growing up because my sibling, siblings were so much older than me. And one of the things I realize now is that they were so busy just trying to survive that 
other than the basics of black parenting conversations, what to do and what not to do, there was not engagement in identity development, racial identity development. We're talking about just work harder, do more, and and understand the consequences if you don't. So there were real survival yeah. messages. And so when I got to be older and, and spend this time on really understanding what I had to do to fully be an integrated person, it had to do with recognizing my lineage, the legacy, and, mm-hmm. and what type of legacy I want to leave. That's big. I mean, that would change the trajectory. As you said, unfortunately, because of American history, there's so many things that we aren't taught, including yeah. myself now, men and women of African-American descent. And you, you have lost culture already. And then identity, because there isn't information about our ancestors, about things we used to do being passed down. So you are kind of deposited into this world where you're kind of like, who am I? <laughs> yeah, and I see, I see happened. that. Mm. I see that with myself. I see that with my my children too. And, and for so many friends and people like you, you're deposited in this dream <laughs> or this this country that that has this dream and you're always trying to figure out, am I really living it? Am I a part of it? Am I in it? And there's all these signs that are giving you different indicators as to, no, wait, that, maybe that wasn't for me. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is. No, it, it, and it gets confusing, I think, as you get older. Managing the anger and turning it into something useful was probably the most challenging because I had so many years of anger. So figuring out how to make that constructive, which is when I started telling kids the things that I wasn't told about this country, letting, helping them, mm. you know, inviting them into understanding, you know, you're not being told mm-hmm. what you need to know aside from how to try not to be killed. So I had to, you know, I, I really brought that into the work that I did. But then how do you make that productive? So I can find that. So you're one piece was just getting it out. And I found this information. Now I'm going to share it. But then how does it not just make everybody else pissed off? How does it become this productive information that like propels everybody forward? I don't think it always does. I don't think it always propels us forward. I think Mm -hmm. uh, I like to think of it in terms of grounding us. Um, Because, you know, we've been told to be resilient. You know, we're so resilient and we're strong. And all that means is you can continue to beat us up for the same price. And resilient only means that you can keep knocking me down and all I'm going to do is bounce back. So I started Um, learning how to reject all of that. um, I think of it in terms of how do you create roots that are strong enough to withstand the wind that just keeps coming. And that's the kind of thing that I try to create in my work with children, with kids, and with adults cross-culturally and both within my culture. And in terms of the consulting that I do. Man, that's so deep. So can you talk a little bit about that? So developing these roots, what, what, where do you start? How are you, how are you yeah. working on developing these roots within yourself and then within the people mm-hmm. that you, you're working with? Right. So I think one of the ways that we can effectively develop these roots is to do the research, read, understand the history of America, not just black history, not just Latin American history, but the history of America. I love the way white supremacy tries to tell us that there's black history, there's there's all these different cultures in history. No, it's American history. And we're talking about within the context of the United States. So once you learn the real history, then you get to stop thinking you're crazy and stop gaslighting yourself and understand that, okay, this all did happen. And this is, this is why so many things make sense once you 
offer yourself the opportunity to learn. The second thing is not everybody is going to get to the level of survival. Some of us are just going to thrive. And how do we do that effectively? We do that by constantly finding community because we are a community-based um, population of people. Where we build community is where we find you know, solidarity, where we find opportunities to reflect positivity, to empower each other. Without that, we're just, we're on our own. And we're, we, we end up, I think, questioning ourselves. So I think community, I think understanding that thriving is sometimes as good as it gets and that, that's okay. We don't have to be res resilient because we're human. Sometimes we're going to fall down and stay down for a while until we can figure out how to come back. And then, you know, understanding that we, we don't have to be strong because to be human is not to be strong. It's just to be aware of all of the plethora of feelings that we are left to feel with throughout our lifetime. Does that um, make sense? It does. It's just so powerful. I'm trying to take it all in. So it, it, in the same process as you're planting these seeds, as you're helping people grow these roots, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced? It's a great question. Look, um, white supremacy, you know, in, in our lifetime, it's elevated from what we used to call racism to now. No, it's just blatant white supremacy. We don't even have to, you know, call them two different names. It's all white supremacy. It's under that umbrella. It's a constant, constant barrier to our emotional and mental health. As far as um, police brutality, that's another police murder, yet another, all a part of that same system. Um, you know, injustice in the policing system and the judicial system, all of those things challenge, which is why we are best supported in community and reflecting the truth. We need people to stop telling us we don't see what we see, and we need to elevate our voices to validate what we see and also become creative. I rely a lot on the youth. I mean, that's one of the things I love about doing the podcast is that it's really helped me find people to afford hope. You know, I don't walk around real hopeful all of, after all of these mm. years of seeing what I see. So knowing that younger people are really taking the torch and running with it, that allows some hope. And as an elder, I need all the hope I can get. Mm. That's big. That's um, that's one of the things that I, I think about with, with regard to hearing you do the interviews and talk to everyone, just hearing the frustration, I think, is what I'm taking it as that you've experienced and really wanting to push the ball forward, but seeing how suppressive all these different areas are in our life and how hard it's been on so many of our people to literally just, as uh, you just survive, just trying to make a way to just feel like you, you know, you, you're worthy of being alive almost. Kev, that's one of the things I saw early on was adolescents, particularly those who live within the limits of poverty, which is far too many right now, did not have a vision. They did not have a vision, right? And I learned this working in the affluent communities early in my career. Since kindergarten, these kids had knew who they were and where they were going. In our communities, kids don't have that privilege. There is no, no clear vision of who you want to be, which is why so many kids end up on the sports you know, route, because it's like, that's who you see most often. But as we expand mm. the vision for the youth, uh, there are opportunities to see different pathways. And one of them is economic intelligence, uh, understanding what finances are and how to begin early is such a key element that I didn't have access to. 
which I think would really greatly uh, empower youth. Yeah. And having a vision of, like you said, people out there that that show it. I'm seeing the same thing right now with with my kids, with my son. I grew up with a father that actually started his own company and um, I work inside of it and I've seen another side of the economic issue. And that's always been my thing is <clears throat> knowing that the need for education, educational intelligence is exactly as you call it, is, is what's, that's how this America functions mm-hmm. on this economy. It used to be the economy of slavery. And right. now as we, we moved into, you know, maybe something slightly different with the prison system and all these things that exist, but we've got to figure out how to function inside of this economy and really be fruitful in it. And it's, lear- you know, learning the keys to the game. And that's the one thing that we've never really been given. We're always working inside of it and, you know, being used by it. And that's all we understand. And I feel the same way as much as I love sports because I grew up with a father that was on the other end and understanding ownership, I began to look and be like, wait a minute, like all these guys are just owned by, so we just keep talking about how much money they make. They make so much money, but I'm like, you know, knowing the economics, I'm like, in order for these guys to pay you a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars, that means that they're making gazillion trillion dollars behind the doors that nobody sees. Like, where's that money? You know? And, and I think more people are starting to talk about it now, but then again, you just start to see, our bodies being used as these musical chairs and pieces to create and all of this opportunity for money to be made. Again, the economics were being used for it, but no one is really um, receiving the benefit of it. The communities aren't getting any of that money back. People are leaving the communities, you know, businesses are being taken away and none of it's fed back into the very souls and pieces that created it. I I remember that what you just brought up for me was, I remember when you were leaving, you're like, yeah, I'm going to start my own thing. And I remember having such angst about it. You know, when you when you left um, the hell group and you were like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I got this music thing. I got this entrepreneurial need. You know, I was scared for you. And it was so weird because that was my upbringing. Right. I had a father who had a business, but he wasn't really great at the business. And so he ended up losing the business. Mm-hmm. So my my, okay. you know, the message to me growing up was. Stay at a job as long as you can, get that insurance, get that a p- pension, get that, you know, pay into that social security, make sure you're solid working class individual, even though we were in poverty and didn't really know it all the time. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I think about that now and it's like, yeah, we should be creating entrepreneurial mentality. We also have to create economic soundness so that we don't buy everything that's sold to us, right? For example, I know mm-hmm. a lot of hate on this, but the whole Bitcoin rush, right? It's like, I had a wealthy man tell me, a wealthy white man tell me, by the time the working class find out about it, the rich have already made their money off of it. Ain't that so I've heard that many times. I've heard that many times. So we're rushing like, oh, we Mm -hmm. got the answer. We got the thing, you know, we're going to make the money off of this one thing. And that's how capitalism has been created. It's been created to Mm -hmm. sell us the leftovers and tell us we can get rich off of it. Maybe kind of a similar example is with, with this whole weed thing, right? Marijuana. And like at first it was illegal and then they're like, Oh, we're going to make it legal. But there's been so many freaking barriers that they've put up Mm -hmm. because all the people that are the big players in positions are now getting their businesses ready. They're trying to make it to where, and then now they've made it. So many people are like, yeah, don't even get into it. It's impossible. 
all That's the exactly people that the are, you know, you know, in the back barriers, which are, I'm sure, all other than black. There may be a few, but so many got pushed out because they did not have the connections and the wherewithal, the legal prowess to be able to maintain what the, the barriers that the government put in place for people that want to take advantage of this business. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then now we still have black bodies behind, you know, in jail, you know, for something now that is considered legal. And uh, I don't know, I saw something that Biden, you know, put out that they're trying to for people that were put away for, you know, small things of me yeah. able to get out. But I don't know. Yeah. Like um, when? when is the question, right? You just got a new speaker of the House who's going to inevitably make things much more difficult and the power remains with the extreme right. So how does that change? Mm-hmm. Listen, I know why why black bodies are disempowered and brown bodies are disempowered in terms of the vote. I understand it. I get it. You know, you keep saying, mm-hmm. why bother when nothing changes? And all we have to believe is that we have to so something can change. Because if we don't, then we're in mm-hmm. even more of a difficult spot. Ooh, that sounds like a t-shirt. We have to so some things can change. Because if we don't, then that's it. I mean, people are obviously moving very quickly and making fast advances to try to push this into a place I don't even want to think about. Okay, we're well, moving on then. So we'll move on to something a little, a little bit, hopefully more positive. But what what inspires you? The one thing that I remember and I continue to see about you, your drive and your passion for people is unmatched. Where Where, where does that come from? It comes from seeing little kids, to be honest with you. Kids, teenagers, they just make me want to do more. Uh, They make me want to make sure therapists are prepared to give them the therapeutic experience that they deserve. It makes me want to make sure they have enough information or at least know where to find the information. That really is the drive. That really is. Kids have always been my thing. Hmm. That's amazing. That that goes right back to the the JD that felt that, you know, they didn't get all the information, right, that she needed. Yeah. And so now that's amazing. You're you're doing the the person in the mirror thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you look, look, literally put it up. Let me tell you, don't let any therapist fool you. And you've heard me say this a hundred times. We are therapists for a reason. We didn't become therapists because out of the selflessness and generosity and benevolence of our hearts, the, de- <laughs> the depth of our soul. We became therapists because we keep trying to figure it out and help other people figure it out at the same time. Yeah. And because we are seeking that corrective experience throughout our lives that's going to, that we yeah, can finally yeah. say that's it. There it is, only to realize there is no yeah. one answer. There's many, av- many so answers. The th- given the therapy is part of your therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but mm. I also wouldn't go to a therapist who hasn't been to therapy. Let's make that clear. <laughs> mm. So that so that was leading right into the next question. I think this might be the only one that actually led to the next. The others we've we've just blown past them. So what what is it you do for self care? Like, mm. you know, hearing everything about your life and what you've experienced, and this is something I'm I'm learning. Also, I'm I just started therapy. We'll add that, yes. and it's been a long time coming, and it's been tough because it's not something especially for a man that's seen as you know something you should do and then i also grew up with a very conservative family that was christian so it was like pray about it pray pray it's like okay i've been praying about this for 30 years and i still got this thing i need to take care (laughs) the lord showed up for these other things but i don't know something's happening with this one (laughs) so like what is it what is it that you do for for 
your own mental state like how do you mm-hmm. how do you do that and then so you don't also how do you like not psycho psychoanalyze yourself you already know what you're uh-huh. giving to other people and you have these things you need how does that work jd look there's a cup that says while you're talking i'm diagnosing you <laughs> and, and so the good news is we diagnose ourselves as well it's you know i, I don't know how to turn i, I know i've dated you know women who've said don't therapize me. I'm like, therapize you. I'm just talking. Like, I don't know how, I don't know where one ends and where the other begins. I I think I've been, I I know Mm -hmm. I've been analytical my whole life. So that fit into psychodynamic theory, which I I felt very connected to. And Mm -hmm. the idea that we, we are what we do. We are what we eat. We are how we treat ourselves in our body. I am very boundaried with my work, but I'm also an empath to the nth degree. I'm like a sponge. I take on everything around me in the world, in the room, uh, constantly. And so I'm not one of those people who can be like, oh, I can cut it off. No, I don't cut it off. What I've learned to do is better integrate it into my life and find channels. You know, I write, I also exercise consistently. I eat a pretty healthy diet in terms of I try to eat fairly clean. I think I, I definitely try to have a healthy social life and sleeping. I'll never forget when I was getting older and I never slept. I, I've been an insomniac my whole life. And I heard Tina hmm. Turner say once when they said, how do you age so well? One of the things she said was, I get a lot of sleep. I don't know. It was like a switch that went off in my head. I was like, and now I'll be sleeping. And so I, <laughs> I, I, I Tina Turner. I say, says it, I'm about to do it. Sleep is now my priority. And so I literally flipped it on a dime and just started really focusing on how to get more sleep and more rest. I try to take um, significant time off, particularly as I'm getting older. And I have been in therapy many, many years. It's only recently within the last probably seven years that I stopped going to therapy. And it's been difficult to find someone that I felt could mirror me moving forward. Mm. Not to say I Mm -hmm. never will go back again. But I've done mm-hmm. so many different types of therapy. My anxiety is less than it's ever been in my life. My depression is one of those things. You know, it's like eye color. It doesn't go anywhere. You just learn how mm-hmm. to manage it with tools and skills and, and, and mm-hmm. creativity. And so I think all of those things are what I do to stay grounded. But it doesn't mean I don't get knocked over and, you know, have to pick myself back up because I absolutely do. It's part of the human experience. Right. Beautiful. All right. Well, I'm going to take a turn and start heading towards the finish line, man. We right on. Maybe we'll pick another time and we'll do like a part two, but we're going to see if we can complete this one. I hesitate to ask about this one, but I feel like it's important. I know it's not something you necessarily talk about, but you did just mention, uh, you know, significant others, girlfriends that you've you've dated, but do you don't yeah. talk openly much about your sexuality? But is there any piece about it? I guess. And again, and it's not necessarily anybody else's business, but a piece that may add it to add that as part of you that's yeah, you've just found a way to really stand in, I guess, in, in who you are. I don't know. Is there any anything you'd like to add about that? So you know, I don't I don't talk about it often because it's not the first and foremost way I identify myself. Right. In my twenties, early twenties, late teens, when I was coming out, it was all about, you know being a lesbian and how do I figure out the best way to be comfortable in my body with who I am. And then, I don't know, it it seemed like not too long after that, when I realized my blackness is much more of an experience to manage, 
my yeah. my identity as a as a masculine centered lesbian is a matter of fact, but it's not a matter yeah. of my purpose. It's not my main identifier. Uh, when people call me sir, I say no. Actually, I'm a female. Um, you ought to expand yeah. your limits of what you think femininity or women look like because we don't all look the same. Uh, That's their problem, mm-hmm. not mine. So I right. don't. I'm unapologetic about it. I guess that's why I don't talk about it. But I also, aside from the black trans community, do not feel that I am as endangered as my sisters and brothers in the community are. I don't feel like they're any any less in danger than I am in terms of our blackness. Does that make sense? So in other words, we're within the gay community, I think those of us who are from the global majority are much more at risk. And in terms of the most at risk, it is the um, the trans community, black females in particular, last I, I read, were the most at risk. So m- being a lesbian is a part of who I am, but I don't see that on the forefront of the fight of who I am. Is that clear? Mm. I mean, almost in the sense that when people see you first, it, maybe there's a line that the, the blackness always reads first. And Always. then they go down the line there, or you're a woman, blah, 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 blah. But the exactly. your color is how society identifies you. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Oh, man. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, sure. From there, we'll jump on into the, the podcast. So we've been working with you now for two years. We started this thing before the pandemic, and this is show 100. What for you has been, is there a favorite interview and is there something that you could say you pulled away from all of the uh, interviews you've done that you've learned from from yeah. doing this I don't know I, I'd be hard-pressed to say a favorite I think they many of them we've had some that we've laughed at more than others because uh, yeah. you know like I say about group therapy and individual therapy going with a, a plan and then be prepared to pivot <laughs> at any given moment <laughs> I, that's for sure but in addition to that I would say, you know, it's been trying to get focused, right? Because I listen to other podcasts, I listen to people and what they pitch. And it's been really f- landing on this idea of decolonization of mental and medical health. And and looking at it through that lens, looking at everything through that lens, that I think we have found our focus. And that's been extremely exciting. Again, it's really just amazing to see younger people just figuring it out and using social media. You all have heard me say a number of times, you know, I was on the front line before social media was a thing. And so it's, I don't know, it's like validating to see them all, you know, getting all this energy from the work that they're putting out there and, and, and the energy they're receiving back. It's just, it is important. They need to know it's important. And I hope that this is a platform to lift voices so they can uh, feel the validation from us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, oh my gosh, the, the, it's really been life changing. I think for all of us, um, helping you produce the show because of the you know sheer amount of personalities and people, and just hearing the the connections. You know, some of the just the tying pieces that that the black community continues to experience, um, and, and it's it's really cool also to hear you talk about coming from a different time, a different generation, and then wanting to pour into these new kids and then seeing all the things that they've creatively come up with to express themselves and do the same thing, I think, and trying to get the message out and trying to, you know, provide things to others that they 
in turn maybe didn't have or right. had or didn't have. Um, and so it, that was one of the qu- last questions we had was then you talk about it quite a bit. I mean, what are some of the, the key differences aside from social media that you see that are so different today? Does it seem like people are a bit more open to talk about? Yeah. What, what are you That's noticing great. now with the new generation? Uh, for one thing, I'm noticing that um, white people are really bold, uh, both mm-hmm. in getting credit for what they did not create and running with it in a way that seems like they created it, but also we are willing to challenge that more. You know, we are no longer talking about allies, right? Back in my day, we were talking about allies and diversity. Now we're not talking about that. We're not, we're even starting the lesson on the Karen piece. They're just angry white mm. women, not Karens. Karen's too nice. They're angry white women and they're not Karens. They're angry white men. Um, and so we're moving more towards language that is more accurate and therefore identifying them more accurately, which I think does a lot because it doesn't dilute what's going on, you know? And so Mm. the white people who we once would call allies, they're either abolitionists now or get off the boat, you know? So it's, Mm. it's this push towards being not just talking about the message, but being the message, you know? And there's a lot more access to information than I had coming up. I mean, a lot of this stuff you know, if it wasn't for some of the original authors, I would have been lost. But now there's so many resources to understand the truth. There is no way to use the excuse, particularly for um, capitalism and, and privilege. There is no excuse to say I didn't know any longer. You can know. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of wanting to know. And that's the, that's the main driving force. Create less and less opportunities to say I didn't know. Accountability. Yeah, accountability is all right. Well, we're coming to a close now and we are going to play the word game. If you are OK with that, we have a couple yeah, of words we're going to throw out at you. <laughs> and if possible, one word response in return or one of Got these it. is two words. I don't know. You let me know if you're ready. We're a little, a little warm up here. I'm ready. And I know this came from Geo, so I'm already ready. <laughs> 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 the game crew. <laughs> that is so funny. Go All ahead. right, here we go. The first one, white fragility. Exhausting. <laughs> Next, capitalism. White. Love. Questionable. Therapy. Important. BIPOC. I fucking hate that word. It's not even a word created by academia. I'm not BIPOC. I'm black. Boom. Um, truth. Always. Man, that's it. I can't. I wanted to say some more stuff, but I can't. That's it. We have to stop. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Oh my goodness, JD! I didn't. I didn't do do BIPOC in one word. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) But you did so well. We get. It should have only been maybe two, three words. But you know, we really wrote it out. So by the fourth or fifth word, you have to speak a little bit. You got to say something. (laughs) So amazing! Show one hundred. You. You have gone beyond my thoughts about you. Now I even think more of you. Um. (laughs) from this interview. This is crazy. 
Uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done for us, for, for being so consistent, for having so much love for people, for yourself. I don't even know what else to say. Do you guys have anything else? You have to say something now. I tried to bring them in and they were like, we're not dressed for it. We can't do it. I was like, no, you should be here. Anything let me say else? one thing. Yes. Let, me, let, me, let me clarify one thing about love. The reason why I say questionable is because people like to talk about unconditional love. I only believe animals and children are, are capable of providing unconditional love. We've been ruined too mm. soon to believe that we can offer unconditionality. We have entirely too much ego and skin in the game. So I say questionable just because question everyone who says they love you. And unless they act like they love you, I let it go. Mm. Man. Actions. Fruit. See, I don't even know. We just start the music or something. That was just... <laughs> There's too many quotes and there's too many mic drops. <laughs> I don't want everybody thinking I'm a, I'm a love hater. That's why I had to clarify that. All <laughs> <laughs> right. They're like, damn, so like, sometimes. damn she's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Thank you so much. Show 100. Thank you. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. I want to say cool. uh, to you all that, you know, thank you is not a big enough word for all the love and appreciation I have for you. Um, your vision, your patience, your generosity is just meant so much to me. And this uh, this work of love, I mean, what you guys do really is action oriented and it's all about the love. And so I hope you feel it that I try to give it back to you as much as I feel like I receive it from you. I love you all very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. We love you. We, <laughs> we feel it. <laughs> she said, I hope that's not questionable. Refill it. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta make sure of that. <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. Love you mucho. All right. Love you so much. Thank you, JD. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD Fuller.